Leslie Orgel's second rule that evolution is cleverer than you are holds special salience for those of us who make wine in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. 13 million years ago, when carbon dioxide levels were about 420 parts per million, that should be a familiar number to all of you listening to this webinar, uh, temperatures were much higher. And um, where I'm sitting now was 130 feet below sea level. The transition to a more stable, human-friendly, in fact, allowing humans to flourish and us to make wine here in the region was mediated in part by the coevolution of plants, C4 grasses, and ruminants. We're here to, today to explore how we can make use of this longstanding evolutionary uh, uh, symbiotic relationship in order to improve the climate, stabilize ecosystems, and improve our vineyard practices. I'm joined today for this webinar sponsored by the Porto Protocol by Johan Renicki of Renicki Wines, Lija uh, uh, Santos, and Kelly Mulville. I'm Tom Krogan from the vineyards at Doden in Davidsonville, Maryland. Before we start uh, with the conversation, I want to introduce, for those of you who may be new to these climate talks, I want to introduce you to the Porto Protocol, an international collaboration of members of the wine industry who share the common goal of mitigating and adapting to climate change. Members from across the entire value chain of the wine industry have come together and share their experience and expertise because as, uh, as the Porto Protocol leadership likes to say, there is no um, competition when it comes to solving the climate challenge. Today, I wanna to start, um, uh, as I mentioned, this is an ancient evolutionary uh, relationship uh, between animals and, and plants. And in fact, it's, not, it's a fairly old uh, 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 relationship uh, in agricultural systems. In fact, Lija, I wanna start with you. Can you introduce your operation? Lija has been uh, using sheep in their vineyard for a very long time. Can you tell us about it and, and, and how it's going? Sure. So hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, especially to Marta and Porto Protocol. It's been super useful to, to be part and to listen to all of these talks with um, very practical advices and a safe space to ask questions um, to very knowledgeable um, colleagues. Um, well, I'm, I'm just to make a disclaimer, Caminhos Cruzados is a very young company. We started in 2012, but I was born in the Down region. Uh, it's one of the, the oldest regions of uh, wine producing in, in Portugal. We are in the center north of the country, close to a mountain called Serra da Estrela, Star Mountain. Um, and it's a very old and traditional region where we grow uh, vines for, for many generations, but we also make cheese, um, sheep cheese, a very specific cheese, one of the, mo the most famous um, in Portugal. And uh, I'm guessing that this relationship between wine and cheese was very, is very ancient and made possible that this, this collaboration between wine growers and, and 
um, sheep owners um, so so ancient. Um, we've been using sheep in Caminhos Cruzados since the very beginning. Um, also because my grandfather, who was a, a small farmer, um, had sheep, had vineyards, and like him, many other small wine producers in, in the region. We kept using them because we are fortunate to have Luis, who should be here talking about this, but uh, his English is not um, so good. So he asked me, so I'm here on his behalf. He is the one in charge to look after our vineyards. And he also happens to be um, the third or fourth generation of um, cheese producing family. Um, they produce that kind of particular cheese I was telling you about made with milk of uh, these kind of, of sheep. And they've been uh, using the, the sheep in vineyards for a long time. And since we uh, have been making wine in Caminhos Cruzados, we are lucky to have him as our partner because he brings his flock every, every year to, to our vineyards. So it's a very, um, it's a win-win relationship between us and, and his family. And we have been having wonderful results with, with the usage of, of the sheep. So, um, so you've had sheep for a long time. Kelly at Pisinus has also had uh, a, a long-standing experience with ruminants uh, prior to establishing a vineyard. So, like like Lesia, he's been able to uh, uh, adapt and start from scratch. To create a vineyard that that is uh, uh, makes use of sheep, Kelly, can you tell us more about your operation? Yes, um, I'm in Pisinas, California, which is on the central coast, and the vineyard that I'm working on has been designed specifically so that we can have sheep in the vineyard throughout the year. So we we run sheep in the vineyard during the growing season as well as the dormant season. And I've been working on that concept for about 20 years. And I first got into that by setting up offset systems in existing vineyards so that we could graze throughout the, the growing season. And we discovered a lot of benefits by doing that uh, reduction in irrigation water use, an increase in yield, an increase in grape quality, and um, or a, a dramatic reduction in labor and outside inputs. So consequently, um, we decided at Piscinus Ranch to try and design a vineyard from the ground up that could be grazed at any time of the year. And so we've been doing that. Uh, the vineyard was planted in 2017 and we have been grazing that uh, for the past three years during both the dormant season and the growing season. We are experiencing a pretty severe drought right now. So we don't have as much forage as we typically do but we're still able to graze. And the benefits of that have been uh, numerous to this point. It's, uh, we don't have to set up the, the modified system, offset system in order to graze. And um, having the vines taller makes them both cooler in the summer and less prone to frost in the spring. Um, the picking, the harvesting is easier and we provide shade both for the soil and the, um, and the workers in the vineyard and the sheep. So overall, this system has been working very well for us. We've uh, increased our plant diversity, our insect diversity, our soil health, our soil carbon, and um, the fruit quality has been very good. So at this point, we're still young into this, but we're very happy with, with having devoted the time and effort to design a system 
that can be grazed at any time and fill up. We're just at the tip of what, it, what the potential is for this going forward. But um, at this point, uh, things are looking very good. We've now had, we've just had our second crop. And in spite of the drought, things are, are doing very well. And so we hope that as we, if we get rain again, that it, it will even improve from that. Yeah, that sounds very exciting and, and, and very interesting. I know the audience will have tons of questions about how you've set up your trellising system, how the uh, new vines do particularly. I know I personally am interested in that because we just planted several acres. But let me go to Johan first. Um, uh, animals in vineyards is a huge topic. We won't even touch upon avian species like hawks and bats, but Johan has a different ruminant in his vineyard. And I wonder if you can tell us about that, please. Sure, Tom, um, thanks for having me and hello to everyone out there. Um, I'm sitting here on the bottom tip of Africa, South Africa in the Western Cape, uh, the town of Stellenbosch. Some birds going crazy in the background. I don't know if you can hear them. Um, anyway, <laughs> apologize for them. <laughs> as happy as I am to be here. Um, we're, I'm situated on a granite outcrop, and I look towards the town of Stellenbosch on my one side and uh, False Bay, uh, Indian Ocean on the other. And I came to this farm uh, many years ago as a student. And um, I started working in the vineyards, uh, basically to earn pocket money as a student. I studied environmental ethics and what I was reading and my experience as a, a farm worker um, convinced me to try and farm in what I think is today understood as regenerative agriculture. Uh, we certified organic and biodynamic and we use different kinds of animals in our vineyards. Um, we have a, a herd of Nguni cows. They are indigenous to Africa. They're absolutely beautiful. They've got long horns and they look like they've been splashed with paint. And then we also make extensive use of, of chickens and, and ducks uh, for different reasons. Uh, the cows we primarily use to help build soil, uh, in particular to increase soil humus levels. Uh, because the area where we live, um, the soils are really old. They're very old, decomposed and weathered granite hills, and they're low in humus. And there's a, a correlation between soil health and plant health, a positive one, or in particular between humus levels in the soil and the resilience of the plants that live there. And the cows play a, a vital role um, in our vineyards in building our soil carbon and making our vines grow better as well. So, Johan, did the cows come first or did the vineyard come first? <laughs> Sounds like a chicken and an egg scenario. Um, the vineyards came first. What, what happened, Tom, is we had a... So if you go to a conventional vineyard in Europe or in the States, I think you're going to sit with humus levels between two and 3%. Um, but Guys and I, university told me, that's not a South African university, as I'm sure you guys know, it's a, a one based in Germany, is that if you can build your humus levels up to 5%, the vines that live there, their resilience increased by as much as 300%. So what we did actually is we just grew 
um, grains and things with a lot of organic matter. And we would then inoculate with microbes to convert that organic matter and to build soil humus. Um, then it was suggested to me to introduce cows into the program because in the on the continent on where I live, and I'm sure it must be the similar on yours as well, um, animals play a vital role in, in building and maintaining soil health. And what essentially happens is in Africa, where, where I come from, you have large herds of herbivores. And when they um, graze naturally, they have to stick in a herd. They're kind of bunched by the predators. So if they would sprawl across the felt, they would be easy pickings, but their safety lies in, in, in the herd. And what happens if you visualize this is they walk across the ground um, as, as a herd, they eat everything in front of them, they trample on everything, and then they defecate and urinate on everything. And below the soil, you then have this uh, die-off of the roots of all of these plants. And in the manure comes all the microbes that then move into the soil and then convert all this organic matter into humus, and that improves the carrying capacity. So what we try and do is, is what is known as biomimicry also. Uh, we can't really bring herds of wild animals onto our farm or wild predators like lions and things like that. So we have cows, and then the predators would be a tractor battery and a little electrical wire. And we then do what, what is known as high-density grazing. So in the dormant months, in the winter months, which now for us would be, let's say, uh, April, May through September, which is your summer months, um, we start on one side of the farm and we graze our cows in our vineyards and then we move them across the hill to the other side of the farm. And once we've completed the cycle, we start again and we repeat. And the first year we did it, we could do this twice in the season, now we're at the stage where we can do it about five times. So the soil uh, humus levels have increased significantly. In some areas, they've gone from 0 0.5 and 0 0.7 to about 4.3. Those are the areas that we've been farming organically now for 20 plus years. In other areas, not so much so, um, but it definitely builds soil fertility, humus levels. And then a nice aside is I used to uh, have to buy a lot of fertilizer to keep the farm going. Uh, when I started farming organically, I had to invest in buying organic fertilizer. These days, I don't buy anything. On the contrary, I just sell off uh, an equivalent amount of oxen and heifers every year. So it's also been good from a farm cash flow point of view and also a diversity of our income stream as farmers here on the southern tip of Africa. So um, before we move on, let me just ask if you have calculated the amount of carbon dioxide sequestration, because about 60% of that so organic matter increase of three plus percent is, uh, is soil organic carbon. That's a lot of carbon. Tom, it's a lot of carbon. Um, our, our farm farming it, uh, itself, is carbon negative. We're actually sequestrating carbon. I feel very proud of that because I was told that modern agriculture is one of the five biggest contributors to global warming. But if you can change things around, 
and perform regenerative agriculture like everyone on this panel is doing, um, it becomes a very effective tool to use farming um, for the greater good to sequestrate carbon on behalf of everyone else. Um, so that is a, it's a real positive. Um, on the negative side, we were called out two years ago um, about bottle weights and how they contribute to carbon footprint as well. So sustainability, unfortunately, doesn't stop at the farm gate. It goes throughout the value chain. And at the moment, we're busy looking at bottle weights. We're looking at alternative packaging, using lighter bottles, and trying to find creative ways to offset our total carbon footprint as well. Yes, and, and, and let me just mention that one of the projects that the Porto Protocol is taking on has to do with that packaging weight and the amount of carbon, and especially in glass bottles. There's lots of good information on the website, uh, in both written and prior climate talks. Um, and let me just also say that if anybody has something to add, I hope that you will sign up and commit, like all of us, to, uh, to sharing your knowledge and experience. Uh, Lisa, how did you all prepare your vineyard and uh, and to mix them, mix it with sheep. The sheep well, Tom, um, right. yeah, well, the, definitely the sheep came before the, the vineyard. And unfortunately, I didn't know um, the, um, the way that, that Kelly will, will certainly talk, um, the way that he planted his, his vineyard. Um, so we, we didn't prepare, we planted the vineyard, well, some of them, were older, but even the, the, the younger vineyards, we planted them in a very traditional way um, because we were, like I said, using sheep for a long time, but only during the um, during that period between, say, November to, to March. I don't know any other producer in our region, at least, that uses sheep throughout the year. So for us, it, it wasn't uh, even uh, a real chance to, to do that. So we, we didn't actually prepare. The only thing that we, we knew when we reached to, to Louis' family um, was to, to have all the conditions for the sheep and the shepherd because in Portugal, well, at least in, in the down region, we still have um, shepherds with, with the flocks. So we don't use the, um, the electrical uh, fencing. So the only thing we had to, to adjust was that. Okay, so, so, so you're using a very traditional uh, old world style of grazing. Uh, you have uh, herding dogs, you have protection yes, dogs. Yes, exactly. So he comes every morning, very early in the morning with the flock and uh, they are around um, 150 sheep and they come together uh, with three um, shepherd dogs, a specific breed, uh, also very typical from that region. And they go back by the end of the day, they do this every day for three to four months. We have our, um, we have two employees that every day will help stopping the traffic so that the sheep can cross the, the street and get into into the farm. But yes, it's a very traditional and old-fashioned way of, of making things. That's wonderful. I have to say that one of the great joys and also one of the essential tools, members of our team actually, is our border collie and our great Pyrenees who lives lives with the sheep. So Kelly, I know we're all really excited to hear 
about how you're grazing, particularly during the growing season. Um, I know that there have been a lot, lot of false starts, including some here at Doden, uh, with regard to training sheep to try to keep them from eating eating grapevines and grapes. Can you tell us about your operation and, and how that's working? So I've, I've, I've been involved a little bit with the training that happens with sheep and the, the uh, aversion training and um, have heard other people's experiences with using the, um, the masks that go over sheep that only open up when they have their head down. And uh, so I, I, I wasn't actually interested in any of those techniques because of the problems I've heard with those. And it seemed like the simplest thing to do would just be to raise the vines up higher. And um, we, the total ranch is, is fairly large. It's about 7,600 acres. And the, uh, we, we do have some cropland on there as well. But so the, the amount of acreage devoted to vineyards is much smaller than the amount devoted to rangeland. So consequently, we have we can have we've run as many as 1,700 sheep in the vineyard in 25 acres, and that was for a very short time for for um, about 24 hours, and we did that just through herding, because we have several shepherds uh, uh, that are both on horseback and have have dogs, border collies, and um, then also we've done it at much smaller uh, populations of sheep where we might say have 200 or so, and we will, we will do a higher stock density and, and graze them for a short period of time that may take us uh, 10 days to go through the entire vineyard that way. And so um, like probably everybody else on this panel, we're working to keep the animals bunched up tightly, mimicking nature and, um, and keeping the keeping the density and the effect, the impact of the animals on the landscape is gonna be very different at a higher density than when the animals are scattered about. And one of the things that is happening is that the, that the dung and urine is getting deposited more evenly over the, the vineyard or the landscape, depending on where they graze. And the other thing in our particular case is that the animals have direct contact with the vines. So they're doing the suckering for us and they're also doing the shoot tipping. and that. The, the, the effect of that that, we are, that we're noticing right away is there's obviously we're reducing the amount of labor because that hasn't, doesn't have to be done by hand or by machine. And so we're, we, don't have any, we don't have any need for fossil fuels um, for doing those tasks. And the other thing that's happening is we are seeing a boost in vine health based on the BRICS levels. And in the areas where we are browsing the sheep during the growing season, we're seeing our BRICS levels get as high as 22. Um, if your BRICS is above 15, then your vines are basically immune to sucking and chewing insects. They can't digest when they can't digest uh, grape leaves when, they're, when their BRICS is that high. And so we are seeing that when the, uh, when the sheep are browsing vines that the BRICS is going up. And so that has been very beneficial. And that's just, one of the few benefits that we've seen in, in, in carefully managing those animals when they're in, in the vineyard. Some of the worst damage I've ever seen in a vineyard has also been from grazing animals, but they were not managed like in the, in the way that all of us on this panel are talking about. They were just put in and left there for, for months. And so that's a, that's a prescription for really 
really reducing the the health of your ecosystem rather than increasing it. Yeah, right. <clears throat> so when you say bricks levels, you're talking about bricks of the crushed leaf. We are talking about yes. So we're yeah. talking about the, the the sap rather than the fruit. Sure. Right. Okay. The sap. Um, uh, Leisure, Johan, do you measure the bricks levels of either the ground cover, the cover crop, or the or the? Um, I'd forgotten about that trick personally. Some we do um, as well, and uh, I, I mean I can only agree with Kelly. It absolutely makes a huge difference. Um, we've got another interesting thing that we use, um, although it's not really animals, it's, it's fungus. So one of the problems we have with viticulture here is downy mildew. And in organic uh, viticulture, um, some people advocate that one uses uh, copper rather than systemic sprays. The challenge with that is that, that copper is a metal and if you're going to repeatedly spray it across your vines, um, you know, it will eventually start building up in your soil, so it can at least, and it can become a self-refuting exercise where you eventually start killing off the life that you're trying to foster. And one of the uh, professors or doctors at the University of Stellenbosch, um, I asked him one day and I said to him, you know, we use ducks, for example, on our farm to hunt snails because uh, our soils were acidic and one would add a bit of lime and with the lime came snail eggs and before we knew it we had a gazillion snails on the farm. So like ducks eat snails, what eats downy mildew? And he said there's a fungus called trichodermia. Like a cow gives you manure, uh, trichodermia gives you metabolite and if you spray this metabolite on your leaves it also increases the breeks levels relatively quickly to above 16%. And um, like Kelly said, you know, yes, with sucking insects, it plays a huge role, but we've also found it to be very beneficial in terms of managing downy mildew uh, pressure. One of the questions that I saw uh, pop up was about the, the financial viability of, of using animals on a, on a small uh, establishment. And I think for us, there are kind of two benefits. Um, the one would be production costs and the savings, and the other one would be the concept of waste on a farm. So what we found was, you know, in, in the country where I live, our currency is, is called the South African Rand. It's a very weak currency. It's probably about, I'd probably need about 20 rands for each of your euros or dollars that you guys have in your wallets. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of modern agriculture production inputs is owned by a few uh, multinational corporations. They're not really interested in earning rands for their products. So our inflation has been slipping uh, over the years, about 6% per annum over the last 100 years on average. And it's been increasingly difficult for farmers, especially small farmers to stay in the game. And what happens is that people then go and do, you know, have to go for an economy of scale uh, to survive. And they can survive for a period of time and then the farms have to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the small farmer tends to fall out the bus eventually. But what we've found with this type of animal, uh, or 
cow husbandry with the, the viticulture is that it saved us in South African rands. I used to pay 100,000 rands. So that's, you know, you can do the math in terms of dollars and euros between 100 and 150,000 rands of fertilizer, and then eventually 100 or 150,000 rand of organic fertilizer. And these days, we don't have to buy anything. Um, in fact, we sell 100 to 150,000 rands of oxen and heifers a year. So the net benefit is, has, has, has been tremendous. We've, we've gained it in income and we've saved it on production costs. Where waste comes in, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. Um, I'm a, uh, we make uh, wine here on the farm and at harvest time we have the small mountain of pips and stems and skins at the wine cellar. And uh, you can't just go and dump it somewhere on your farm because it, it'll acidify the soil. It's really not good for the soil health. Um, the same problem if you, if, you, if you farm with cows. I mean, we've got about 50 head of cattle on the farm. And they leave quite a bit of manure in the area where, they, where we corral them, I think is the right term. I'm actually Afrikaans speaking, so I'm not quite sure what the English words would be. But the place where they sleep at night, um, there's a big buildup of manure there as well. And then the nitrogen levels can become very high. But the moment you create a synergy between these two systems, the problem disappears because now you take all the waste from the animals and you can put that in the vineyards and you can take all the waste from the wine cellar and feed that back to the cows again. The timing is perfect because the driest time of the year is just after harvest. Uh, there's no green stuff for the animals to graze on the farm, really. And they love a bit of greenness. And then they love to snack on some, some pips and some stems and some skins as well. So, yeah, it's been hugely beneficial from both a production point of view of savings and then also from a waste management point of view on the farm. Yeah, that, that's um, a beautiful, beautiful example of a circular economy. Uh, Lisa, you I, comment. Yeah, I was, I was about to add something to what Johan was saying. We have the, the same experience here because, um, like I said, we don't own the flock, so the flock comes in and goes every day. But because um, Luis, our, our employee, is also the, from, from the, the sheep, the cheese-making um, family, we started to, to wonder in, in how many ways we can we could help each other. So thinking about the sheep. And like Johan was saying, and I also don't know the word in English, but the sheep need to sleep in this kind of leaves bed, right? So the, where they sleep and it has to be changed with some frequency. And because um, in our property, we, we have obviously vineyards, but we also have um, a lot of woods. And so we switched the remains of the pruning of, of, the, of the vineyards and these woods. We changed for some manure. So we were making um, a, a compass that we were will we'll be applying at the vineyards now, starting in, in December. So we were giving him something that he needed he needed to 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 put to make the beds for for the sheep, and in return he would give us something that we needed to to you know improve the quality of our soil. So it was not only while they're staying um, in the vineyards they are helping us, but throughout the year we can we can help each other. So this reciprocal relationship between the, the, the vintners, the, the viticulturalists, the ecosystem and the animals is really helpful, I think, in all of our experiences. We've been talking about that. But uh, 
having a sheep operation, having a cow operation uh, comes with costs. We have to have veterinarians, we have to breed, we have to uh, 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 get fencing and that kind of stuff. Uh, Kelly, can you talk about some of the uh, costs that are involved in having this uh, dual operation, if I would, if I can? Um, so the, the interesting thing about this is the they each have their costs and with, by having sheep in the vineyard um, really at any time of the year, but for, for us, especially because we can now graze them during the, during the growing season, what that means for us is that the, we have a dramatic decrease in costs of producing the grapevines. And so in addition, we also have, we're, we're, we're stacking enterprises. So we have a sheep operation in combination with a vineyard. So um, the, uh, having those two, the synergy between those two and being able to offset costs of both those is pretty significant. From my initial research and when I was just modifying vineyards, we, and this was about um, 12 years ago or so, but um, the, uh, the savings from that varied from 500 to $1,000 per acre. And I would say as, 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 as time goes forward, um, the, the, the costs are just going to continually rise um, re regardless of, of where you are because resources are declining. And so taking this approach of integrating animals into a, into a cropping system like grapevines, this it can also be done with all kinds of, with, with fruit trees and, and many other cropping practices that, that takes the, that, that puts together the, the natural nutrient cycling that occurs in nature, as Johan was talking about biomimicry. So what we're doing is we're creating fertility on site and, um, using the, the most inexpensive energy source available to us, which is the sun. And it's interesting that sunlight is probably the most wasted energy form on the planet. And, and primarily in agriculture because there is so much bare ground. And by integrating animals, you need to have something for them to eat. So we are actively working towards keeping ground cover in the vineyard throughout the year because that allows us to have something for them to eat. And so again, that is, that is basically creating a, creating a food from sunlight and healthy, healthy soil. And so as each year passes, our inputs are going down and sometimes pretty significantly, our labor needs are going down. And as we're getting better at marketing, at marketing sheep, which is a little bit tough in this country because of, unfortunately people don't realize how good um, sheep meat can be. And um, so, and, and I mean, I, I just, when I, when I hear uh, the, the story of, of the using milk sheep in vineyards, that just makes me think how that is, that's, that's another brilliant angle for this, that you could potentially be producing three things, sheep for, for meat, for milk, and then and wine grapes. So I think there's the, the only limit in, in, this, in this realm of reducing costs, increasing profitability is our own is our own creativity and combining that with the natural intelligence of of the of of, of the uh, of nature. So there's yeah. tremendous opportunities. A absolutely, Kelly. Are you uh, planting forage crops within the vineyard? Are are you adding oats or grasses or other other forage alfalfa? 
so that was part of our um, development process was was putting was using cover crops and that dramatically increased the carrying capacity but as and so our, our organic matter went up one percent before we even got our first crop off the vines and i attribute that a lot to the to the grazing practices and and using the cover crop but going forward we are we don't want to create too much fertility actually in the vineyard um, but we want the vines to to match to, to to express the fertility in the vineyard and and fill the trellis system in a way that seems balanced and so we're, we're striving for a balance there and one of the things that's very important to us is biodiversity and so as i'm moving forward in this i'm actually backing off on our on our cover crop seeds and oats were a big part of that and we we we, we always were using a diverse cover crop but as we go forward we're seeing a lot of the native plants coming back in and we are excited about encouraging those and creating this balance of what this particular ecosystem wants to express and how we manage for that. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why we've had such a dramatic increase in insects and birds and insect eating birds in, in, in the vineyard. So, as, so to answer, we did start out using cover crops. We still use them in small numbers occasionally. But in general, we're relying on the our management practices to increase the plant biodiversity. Johan, you're also in a dry area. Did you? Are you? Is that your experience? Absolutely. I think you know every every farm is different, and every vineyard is different, and every corner of the world is different. Our biggest challenge, as I mentioned earlier, was that our soils are, are really old. Um, they're probably some of the oldest soils you can find anywhere in the world in terms of how, you know, where vineyards are grown. Um, so farming organically here is very different from farming organically in Germany, for example. You can't superimpose the same methodology. So initially what we tried to do is we understood we came to understand that we were farming with two things. We were farming with grapes, if I can put it that way, in the, in the short term, but farming with soil in the long run. And you have to find a balancing act. And it's a, it's a difficult act to balance because if sustainability is a three-legged chair, you have to sort of look after people and you have to look after nature, but you also have to look after money. And it's sad, but it's true that we can exploit nature the longest and get away with it. And people the second longest, but the moment you run out of money, the business kind of grinds to a halt. So what we did is we took a long-term view and we had certain objectives that we aimed for, but we would err on the side of caution. So in really dry years, we would have to, you know, be a bit more careful in terms of yield management and things like that. But in years where we had plentiful rain, we could really afford to build the soil. So the cover crops played an important role. Um, initially, when we transitioned from conventional to organic, um, the soil life was really limited. The humus levels were really low. The soils are very old and the vines really struggled. And my yields almost dropped to unsustainable, well, not almost, they completely dropped to unsustainable levels. So in that phase, we sowed and planted a lot of legumes, things that have the ability to fix nitrogen and, 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 and put it in the soil. So clovers and beans and peas and veg and cerebella and medics and stuff. And then over time, 
um, we started to plant more grains because you now if you have, if you plant oats or rye or triticale or something like that, it's a much more fibrous plant. There's a lot more organic matter, a lot more material for the microbes to convert to humus. So at the moment, I would say our ratio would probably be about 60, 40, 70, 30, uh, in terms of 60 or 70% would be grains and 30 or 40% would be legumes. Um, but because we don't use any herbicides on the farm, there are a lot of wild uh, plants and herbs and things that come up naturally. It's also very interesting to see how they've evolved over time. So initially, when we did the conversion, the soil was really hard and compact and you know, people had been using aggressive herbicides and stuff and the weeds that came were really gnarly and hard and robust pioneer plants to try and reclaim the space. A lot of uh, uh, weeds with proper tap roots like dandelions and things like that to try and break that hard soil down. But over the time, as the soil has improved, the weeds and the things that nature sent, if I can put it that way, have become a lot softer and easier to work with. So at the moment, if you go and stand in the vineyard, you're probably going to find about 11 different plant species per square meter. Um, some of them we've planted, some of them we've planted in, in previous years and they've just reseeded themselves. And some of them are just uh, plants that nature sends given the health of our soil and the, and, the, and the process and the time that we're in. But I just want to agree with Kelly here, you know, I always thought it was all about regenerative agriculture and what I like to call land caring building the soil and, 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 and sequestering carbon and stuff like that. But I'm, you know, I was told a funny, scary thought the other day, and that was since the beginning of the 16th century, if you go from then until now, um, we've lost a third of all species uh, on planet Earth due to how we as humans have, have lived and the whole industrialization of our existence. And in the area where I live in the Western Cape, currently there are 200 plant species that are being endangered through agriculture and viticulture because on the slopes where you want to plant your vines, a lot of these endangered endemic plants also exist. So I think it's important to find a balance between land caring and also land sparing. And they, they're kind of funny in the way that they're both good for the planet, you know, um, but in, in, in sequestering carbon for everyone and, and protecting biodiversity for everyone. But it also feeds back to the farm because I think if, you know, we've already mentioned how farming this way has improved our, our, our ability to farm here. But in terms of biodiversity, you know, the, all the predator insects and stuff that we need to keep the pests at bay all live in these wild pockets of flowers and plants and pockets of wilderness on the farm as well. So one must sort of strike a balance and the areas where you do farm, farm regeneratively and the areas where you don't really take care of nature and, and, and look after it to the best of one's ability as well. Yes, uh, I think that's really important, Johan, and the, and the scientists at Potsdam are telling us that actually the loss of biodiversity is a greater threat to human longevity than climate change. So that's a, that's a big problem. And, and, and I certainly understand that, that what you do and Kelly and Leisure are doing is, is helping to mitigate that problem as well. 
Leisha, can you tell us about your cover crops and, and forage? Yes. Um, um, I'm, like Kelly and, and Johan said, we have um, different experiences. Uh, we used to, to plant, especially when we were um, planting new vineyards, definitely. Uh, but over time, um, we also wanted to have a more typical... Um, to say mosaic of, 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 the, of the, the biodiversity. We wanted to be, um, we wanted to have what was really typical from that region and not uh, only use plants that were uh, obviously good for the vineyard, but try to see um, something that was more related to the identity of, of that particular place. And what we also noticed using the sheep, that was very curious, is that um, on vineyards where we didn't have, for example, clover uh, planted, uh, after the sheep were um, grazing in some vineyards that did have, uh, because they have um, some digestive um, difficulties uh, with some seeds, they make them travel. And, and, and so we started to notice that some of, of, of the, those different species were traveling with the sheep and, and we were seeing results of that um, over the years. And that also contributed in a very natural way um, to, to enhance the, the biodiversity on, on the vineyards. And so we, we, we stopped uh, planting. Of course, we will once it's necessary because like Johan was saying, I think everything's about balance. Uh, we're not um, extreme, but we wanted to, to give the opportunity to see how the soil would respond. Um, and also we had that very lucky um, participation of the sheep bringing all kinds of different things to the soil. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll just say our experience because we're in a very wet area. We have uh, quite a lot of rain here. Uh, and um, we've given up uh, planting cover crops at all. I tried because I had specific problems I wanted to try and deal with. But um, we now have uh, 20 to 30 natural uh, 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 crops in per square meter. Uh, and what we're observing is that because those uh, uh, spontaneously generating plants are, um, are adapted to our region, the insects are adapted to them. And so they can find their food sources better. And so we're getting a much more diverse uh, insect population at all. So it goes back to, to this uh, virtuous circle that we've been developing. Um, there are, let me just say, we have about 10 minutes left. And let me, there are a number of questions that I'd like to um, have us see if we can address. One is about water use. Um, and since I'm in a wet region, I wanna ask about how, how water is handled in the vineyard whether it's too little water or too much water. Um, uh, Kelly, do you want to start? So we're in the worst drought in 1800 years in California. And um, so I wish you could send some of your water our way, Tom. <laughs> um, I do too. I'm afraid you're gonna send us our, the need to produce food for the country. <laughs> but um, the, uh, and, and obviously, Obviously, building up soil organic matter, soil carbon is important 
to increase the water holding capacity of your soils. But we're, our drought is so severe now that it's the big part of that equation is you have to get water to start with for the soil to hold. And we've, it's, the, the rains have been so few and far between that it's, it's, it's I think we've basi we're basically pretty much completely dry. Um, we do irrigate and we have found that even in the drought, our irrigation levels are going down as our management practices continue to show benefits on the land. And so it's, and our, our vineyard is on a sloping hillside. So since in, in the eight years that I've been in California working on this project, we've experienced the wettest year in recorded history and now also the driest, uh, the, the largest drought, the most significant drought in 1800 years. And through that all, we have not, we didn't lose any soil um, during the heavy rains because our ground was covered and our organic matter was, was decent. It wasn't, it wasn't actually great at that time and, and it still has a long ways to go. But, um, and we keep our soils covered throughout the year, either with, with uh, plant residue and, and dung or with living growing plants. And so I think that's pretty critical too. So I think uh, kind of regardless of your situation, creating a high organic matters in your soil whether you have a lot of rain or, or you don't have much rain is, is, is critical. And I think that is, I mean, that's something everybody here is, is, is doing. And I think that's probably one of the primary keys to, to addressing that water cycle. Thank you, thank you. Uh, another question has to do with the need, um, with, the, with the learning curve, let me put it that way. It's hard to find experienced shepherds experienced rustlers, wrestler, wrestlers, cattle rustlers um, uh, in the world today. Uh, uh, can you uh, comment on how you all learned to care for, for your critters um, and what you do about veterinary care and all the, just the logistics of, uh, if in inexperienced situations. Uh, Johan, do you wanna talk about that from your cow and duck experience? Yeah, it's, you know, I'd like to pick up there with, with where um, Leisure explained how, you know, it's the pasture and the sheep, it's not a linear process. It's the sheep kind of eventually outcreating the pasture. And we find the same thing with our cows. Um, initially, you sort of plant stuff for them, but somehow nature works. And where they graze eventually becomes what they need to live off. Uh, what I would definitely go for would be what we call indigenous animals. So if you think of a typical European cow, they would be bred for beef or for milk. So you would go for a, an Angus or a, I don't know, Hereford or something like that. If you want to be a, a beef farmer and you would go for a, a Jersey or a Frisian cow, if you wanted to be a milk farmer. But here in, in, in South Africa, we have, as I mentioned, these cows called Nguni. And they are products of evolution. Uh, they were not bred to produce beef or, or milk. Obviously, they do have milk and they do have meat, but they've been selected by nature through evolution. Uh, they incredibly resilient. Uh, they calve very easily. 
Um, they're very, <clears throat> you know, they have a natural high resistance against pests and, and disease that you find in our area. And that has really made it a lot easier to work with an animal that is suited to this specific place rather than to try and import an animal from, from elsewhere. Um, so I, I think for me, that was the biggest learning curve was to, you know, take a step back and, and in, instead of trying to superimpose my views on, on, on nature, almost allow it to work um, and, and, and to stop fighting it and to, to let it, you know, fight with me, if I can put it that way. So, so I'm a big believer in indigenous animals um, for a specific area. I think they play a vital role. And it also it also ties up with 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 Kelly's concept of, of water conservation because you know what the animals do through the humus they build is they really they reduce the runoff and they do increase the water carrying capacity. Um, but just as an interesting aside, uh, we also farm on a slope on a hill, and it's not just water quantity that counts; it's also water quality that is becoming increasingly important in agriculture. So we can have water from an irrigation scheme, but we found that the quality of the water that we've been getting over the years has kind of slipped a bit as human settlements have increased and, and, and that type of thing. So what we've done now is we've we've drawn these contours across our our hill to harvest rains when we get them. We have a top dam and we have a lower dam. And then we'll float solar panels on the lower dam and use the sun to pump the water up to the top dam. But what we've also done is taken, if you visualize a contour on a slope, it's quite a bit of wasted land. It's like a three meter wide bottom wall of the contour. So we're using, trying to plant endemic plants uh, on those contours as well. So they also then start to double up as wildlife corridors for the farm, almost like the, the people in the UK had the hedgerows in the old days. And, and that also seems to be important because if you, you know, if you farm organically or biodynamically or regeneratively or like everybody here farms, I think it's less aggressive than conventional modern industrialized agriculture. But to be honest, it's still farming and it's still a bit more invasive and aggressive than, than wilderness. And the more, I don't know, diverse an ecosystem, the more stable it becomes. So to have these strips of, of wilderness run through your farm tends to help. And like the other synergies that we spoke about, the animals and the crops, perhaps this is also an idea to, to harvest water. It will give you clean water. You won't waste water. And you can also use it as a corridor for, for wilderness across your farm as well. It was just an aside that I thought of when we yeah. when, 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 in the United States, we call that key lime uh, grazing. Uh, Leisha, do you have any uh, any other comments about the learning curve? Um, I know that you all have an experienced shepherd looking after your flock. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, I I think we've been fortunately saying the same things in a very different way, but we all agree that I think that at some point farming became um, or farmers uh, became a bit um, arrogant, I'd say, and um, put aside um, many traditions and something that, you know, 
many generations have been doing. Um, and I'm very young, so I can say I, I was very arrogant. Um, and I remember thinking that all things my grandfather did was weird. And now we had a lot of different information and means to you know, make things um, different. And I think that once we you know, take a step back and, and um, try to understand why, like um, Johan was saying, there's a reason why that kind of cow performs better. There's a reason why uh, these kind of sheep that have been, you know, been there for many generations producing uh, a cheese. Oh my God, something uh, popped up. Which, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I think that if we um, take a moment and try to, to, you know, look back and see what brought us here, um, then we, we might take some valuable uh, lessons. And with sheep for us, it was, was um, a lot like that. So we, we just understood that they were very close to us. It was very easy to, to find the right kind of animal. It was a way uh, that was helping us and also the community around us. It was also a way to keep traditions, to keep certain professions such as uh, a shepherd that was um, becoming very, very scarce because uh, all the cheese producing companies were becoming very big and were not using this kind of method. So they were just having sheep being fed and the sheep were no longer going through the fields and were no longer you know, shepherds. Um, so a lot of things were disappearing just because I think we were not looking at farming in a, a, um, a, a circular um Mm -hmm. as a circular thing yeah we were thinking i do, I do wine so i have to to care about grapes he does uh, cheese shoot so he must care only about cheese, uh, sheep milk so once we started you know talking and and doing the way that has been done for for many many years it, it became easy to to learn thank you for that 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 loss of our traditional identity as we talked about when we met earlier, is really important. Um, uh, Kelly, you mentioned, uh, I want to just take one more question from the audience. Uh, Kelly, you mentioned increases in soil organic matter in your vineyard as well. Have you calculated the amount of carbon dioxide that you've sequestered? Um, no, I have not done that. Um, and um, in regards to carbon, I think it's it, it's critical and important, but it is not our focus. Our focus is biodiversity because I think if we just focused on car carbon, we would it would be a linear thinking. And the thing that that I have calculated is that with every increase uh, one percent increase in the soil organic matter, that is in increasing our water holding capacity of the soil by about, I believe it's around 60 gallons per vine. So, um, and that, that's, that's a pretty important number for us, but we haven't sat down and done the calculations of the, um, of the, of the, of the uh, CO2. Um, Carbon. The, yeah. um, the, I think for, for the water calculation, I think the standard measures 20,000 gallons per acre. It, it varies, yeah, it varies yeah, between varies. like uh, eight, 18 to 25, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um, for carbon, you can figure it out. I, for, I forget that somebody's calculated the conversion, but it, um, you know, 
soil organic matter is 0.6% soil organic carbon. A furrow slice, which is six inches deep over one acre, weighs 5 million pounds. So from that, you can calculate for every 1% increase in soil organic matter. You can figure out how much carbon and therefore how much carbon dioxide you're sequestering. Um, remember, you have to add the weight of the, of the oxygen in too. Um, so uh, we're almost at the end, um, but let me just ask if you have a pearl or uh, one piece of advice that you could offer each of our uh, listeners and, and, and audience and um, that you would uh, like to see them if they're starting out uh, and wanting to put animals in their vineyards. Uh, let's start with you, Lisha. Well, um, yeah, well, uh, I, I think I'm the only one who doesn't, uh, who has a, a smaller production and who doesn't actually uh, own the, the sheep and, and, and has like a sheep or animal business inside um, the, the company. So my, if, if there are any uh, small producers thinking about how big of an investment it is and how much you have to you know, study and all, I, I would say to... Take a look around, talk to your neighbors, see how um, your problem can be someone's um, solution and then the other way around. Um, try to think of it as something bigger than, than your business. And, and I think that you'll find many good solutions. Johan? Um. I think the best advice I ever got was to surround myself with people who are better than I am at specific tasks. Um, no one is good at everything. And, you know, I think what I've been trying to do in our farming setup, there are different jobs, um, uh, is to really look for people who have better capabilities than, than I have in every single one of those areas. And it, it, it really works. Otherwise, you kind of limit your business to your own ability. And um, there are amazingly astute and capable and competent people out there. Um, one thing that I really learned from this as well, also uh, credit to Alicia, is this concept of bringing culture into the into the consideration. I've always thought of, you know, nature and biodiversity and regenerative agriculture, but I really like this idea of the of the community and preserving the cultural value of agriculture as well, because that's what we are. You know, it's not agribusiness; it's agriculture. So that was also very cool. Thanks for that. Thank you, Kelly. So. Um... It's hard to beat those two suggestions, but um, one thing I would say is to start small. And um, if you, you, you can't run a flock of sheep if you can't take care of one. And so um, I, would, I would encourage people to start small and, and look around. There's, there's people in your area who have expertise in, in, in some type of animal or poultry or something that would work well in your situation. And, and, and work with them um, and, and keep it small to start with. I started with, with three sheep on a quarter acre 
And so it's, and, and, and then you have, you build the confidence to, to move forward. Yes, yes, very good, very good advice. So I wanna um, uh, thank our audience for attending. I wanna thank the three of you for being part of this. I've learned a lot uh, and you talk about uh, learning from your neighbors. Um, I think what, what, what I take away from this and what I take away from you all is that, uh, is that the commitment to restoring the ecosystem, to building biodiversity, to sequestering carbon, and to restoring the identity of our individual regions. Those are concepts that are bigger than any one of us. And we're committed to that, uh, to that uh, cooperative activity to try and restore uh, uh, and uh, create a, a better future for our children and grandchildren. Thank you so much. And thank you all for attending. Thank you.